Welcome back to the Provo Pick and Roll Podcast. Joining me today is the My Bad Announcing cancer-solving point guard who ruined our friend Cade's life in Nashville, Jordan Kress. Jordan, um, do you even know what I'm talking about in this Nashville experience? I I am not aware of any traumatic experiences that Cade underwent in that uh, that trip that was at least due to me. I mean, there was a lot of like kind of, you know, we ended up sleeping in a church parking lot and in a public park for a little while. But I don't think any of that was really on me. Yeah, do you care to elaborate? And Erica like got pneumonia or something. Oh yeah, she threw up in an alley. <laughs> not but sure. not because of drinking, because yeah, just because. Yep. So y'all had because, a. Yeah. This was the weekend of our of our wedding. So me and Sarah were mm-hmm. in Kentucky, and then y'all were. This was the, the like day before or two days before yep. y'all were driving up to Kentucky. So this was the. You know the party getting getting ready for your wedding. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. What happened? What? Yeah. So Cade wanted me to ask, like, why he ruined his life because apparently this is the story that I heard is y'all were, you y'all were on your little little city scooters that you were getting around in in Nashville and um... and Taylor Swift was there in person to to. I don't know, remember what she was doing. She was dedicating something or she was there like in person, impromptu uh, to, to do something. And she was like two blocks away and you were having problems with your scooter. You couldn't figure out how to use your electric scooter and everyone else was ready to go. Uh, and because they were nice and it was like midnight or something, I don't know how late it was. Y'all were in the middle of nowhere in a city. No one you didn't know anything about. They waited on you nicely and then uh, eventually you got your scooter to work. But by the time you got to where Taylor Swift was um, in person, it's, this is like Cade's favorite, one of one of Cade's favorite artists, at least, uh, as preface. And then uh, she was gone by the time that you got there. And it was literally just like a few minutes, like she was there. And then you got there a few minutes late. Okay, okay, all right. So in my defense, well, number one, we don't know how long it was, how long Taylor was gone by the time that we got there. I'm pretty like, sure you, you do, had, though, because they found out. People were pretty cleared out by the time that we were there. I don't know. So who's to say, if even if I got the app to work immediately, who's to say if we were actually able to uh, see be, be there on time to see Taylor Swift? Also... I was pretty content. I had no desire to go see Taylor Swift. So I was like, yeah, you guys go. Um, but I don't know. But I probably They're probably resistant to do that because, you know, it's maybe not the best idea to just ditch one of your friends in the middle of a city where you know nobody. I was like, oh, we could have figured it out. You know, you would have met up later. Um, cause I'm pretty sure that would have been at least one person. Like, I don't know if, I don't know if Drew was super... Um, super dying to see Taylor Swift. Maybe I could have got him to stay with me, but also that app was not intuitive. I had to down, I had to like delete it and download it like two or three times to get it to finally work. I don't know. I don't know what it, it was. It doesn't sound like it wasn't intuitive. It sounded like your phone couldn't run your app. Well, I think that's the thing. Yeah. Everyone with the Apple products didn't have any problems, but me with the Samsung, oh. I just didn't like the Samsung. Okay. I don't know. 
Okay. All right, I'm Apple. on board with you there. And I, yeah. Apple's annoying, although yeah. I am using an Apple computer because my non-Apple computer broke, so maybe I shouldn't. I mean, is it because it's a non-Apple computer or because it's the age of the dinosaurs? It's from the age of the dinosaurs. I mean, it was new when I got it. It was just a few years old. Yeah, I got a Lenovo. So as an anti-endorsement for Lenovo, I don't know if any if anyone else has problems with that brand. Well, or no, it, I mean, I have Lenovo. Lenovo has been great for me. I had this. I've had this laptop for seven years now. Yeah. Okay. I'm doing pretty good. I mean, well, I got a bad one then. Yeah, I don't know. Kind of on the tail end, but um. But anyway, you did. Well, just so you know, in hindsight, you didn't know that you ruined Kate's life, but you did. So wow. I just you know, wanted to well, inform you of that. That you were the anchor to the team, even though one of the team was literally dying with with sickness, and you were still the anchor at that experience. So okay, well, I guess I would just like to publicly apologize to to Cade Michael Barton for ruining his <laughs> life. Um, let's say we'll call it even for you almost pushing me off a cliff. We'll, 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 what we'll is that, that story? It was on our Vegas trip. Um, well, because we, we stopped in St. George for a hike. When was this? This was... So, this must have been... This was the summer of our sophomore year? Yes, sophomore year. So you'd started dating Sarah. So I guess, you know, you were too cool for us at that point. Probably, um, yeah. So that's why you didn't come with us. But yeah, we decided to go to Vegas. It was for Erica's... 21st birthday i believe yeah okay it was um so that was supposed to be the party thing when we go to vegas so but we stopped in st george and stayed at morgan's grandparents house and then went on like a hike there but yeah on the hike we're standing on the edge of like this rock face right and it's kind of just drops off i don't know what urge overcame kate at this point but he decided to like kind of pick me out and push me a little bit and I started like falling down and I'm like scrambling on the rocks and had to like grab onto something. And everyone's just like looking and then, you know, like was able to catch myself so I didn't fall to my, to my death or anything, but yeah. But, but you might have was, actually. I, I, I actually might have, like that was kind of a scary experience, but uh, yeah. I mean, it wasn't really that close. Like, it's not like I was, you know, hanging by one hand on the edge of the cliff and everything. But as far as near-death experiences that I've had, that like ranks up there. So, um, were, so yeah, were you... we'll call it even because that would have really ruined my life. Well, <laughs> yeah. Were, were you in the ward with, um, I'm blanking on his first name, but uh, Wilcox? Uh, oh, no, he was there before... The he year was there before, before. he really there. did fall yeah. off a cliff when yeah. I was there and like yeah. almost died. He yeah. like broke his face, literally. Uh, but he somehow survived. I don't know how he survived. Yeah. He like he was in uh I think they were in arches and literally fell off a cliff and uh made it miraculously. Um I think he's still doing well now. But well, that's good. And also since we're on kind of a you've kind of turned this into a more morbid moment. Um <laughs> because uh, we're trying to have fun on this show, but Jordan can't help. But since we're kind of in that um, in that moment, uh, I would like to uh, take a second to uh, recognize the terrible wildfires that have occurred in Lahaina, Maui, 
yeah. Hawaiian Islands that um, I, where I, I used to live for a few months while I was missionary, and uh, the entire town of Lahaina is essentially gone. It's uh, the wildfire um, fueled by hurricane winds off the off the coast of Hawaii. At fifty five, seventy five mile an hour winds in the area. Um, that have destroyed all of Lahaina town, a lot of homes that were used uh, by locals who owned either owned the land or a lot of them were renters, a lot of them lower income renters who relied upon Lahaina town and the tourist industry for their livelihood in the area. Um, really struggling at this time. Um, obviously their homes are gone, jobs are gone and many lives have been lost. The count is currently up to last one I saw was 93 deaths. And it's and they're anticipating that number to continue to rise because they're still searching the rubble essentially and trying to find um, people who couldn't make it out. And so it's a really sad situation. If you have any connections or have any means to help them, there's there's several different uh, opportunities for donation. Um, but that is that is a pretty serious situation out in Lahaina. So I just wanted to. To mention that uh, for those of you who may not be aware of the situation. Yeah, I saw that on the news. Uh, it's really sad, really unfortunate. Um, there's not really a good way to transition from that. Um, so, Jordan, have you watched uh, Slam Ball? <laughs> Slam Ball is back. I know, because, yeah, it's crazy. You know, this is very much the lull of the sports year, um, but... Thankfully, we have been saved by something, and yeah, it is the return of Slam Ball. So for those of you who are unfamiliar, Slam Ball is a sport that is invented. It's basically, uh, it's basically, it's basketball on trampolines, but it's also kind of combines some aspects of like hockey and like rugby in it, because it's, it's very much a contact sport. Um, you can just body check people as they're trying to jump onto the trampolines. It's it's pretty wild. It's very funny because I remember growing up looking at like watching this show and everything, like being like, wow, this is the coolest thing ever. I would love to play this someday. And now as you know, as an adult, I watch these people play and I'm like, there's no way on earth that you could get me to play this sport because <laughs> like I would die. <laughs> you know, it's just insane because you've got, you know, you know, 200 pounds, you know, guys just up in the air, like getting up 20 feet in the air and just colliding with each other, you know, it's just really, it, it amazes me that, yeah, there's not more injuries from that sport. So, but it is overall very fun to watch, you know, lots of fun plays where, you know, just throw crazy alley-oops to each other and uh, very fun posters where the guy, I feel bad for, you know, they have uh four four positions in the sport of slam ball there's the stopper and like the th so he mainly stays on the defensive end to protect the basket and then the other three guys usually go to play offense so he's I the one that bad. just gets dunked on all yeah, the time because he's just a constant <laughs> poster you know um i mean you know every once in a while they do get pretty good blocks and i'm sure that's satisfying but for the most part they're just getting dunked on kind of um repeatedly so anyways yeah, kind of fun. Have you watched any uh, Slam Ball since its return? Or any I have not. Or anything? I have not watched any Slam Ball. Um, I feel like that is one of the activities of my life that, like as an eight-year-old, 
there is no cooler thing in the world than slam ball. Mm -hmm. But now that I'm 28, it's not. It doesn't have the same. <laughs> doesn't have the doesn't same. Have the same appeal. Doesn't yeah. have the same appeal. Although I do. I don't know if you ever did this. I was inspired when I was young because I uh, by by slam ball because I took a little exercise trampoline and would put it in front of our basketball goal and oh dunk yeah on it because yeah. I was eight and I couldn't dunk normally. But if I had a I had a trampoline, then yeah, good. Probably pretty I, dangerous. I probably could have like broke my ankles. And... Oh yeah, but no, yeah, every. I, I think a lot of kids did that. Like I did that. <laughs> the, the trampoline we used was just not very good, though. I remember, yeah, there was one time we borrowed Morgan's trampoline. He was my next door neighbor at the time, but his trampoline you hardly get any bounce off it. So you'd have to get the trampoline, but then still lower the hoop to like eight and a half feet. Oh uh, yeah, and then you could dunk. I think I did that too. Still. Oh, okay. So yeah. It wasn't like a 10-foot rim. That was probably good because that makes it a little bit less dangerous for you. Quite as the a, drop. As yeah. an eight-year-old or whatever. Uh, yeah. Because, yeah, even just dropping from that 10 feet high as, a, as an eight-year-old is probably, probably dangerous. But, yeah. Anyways, so, you know, I, I think that is funny that they kind of just throw that in there, you know, in the middle of the end of basketball season, the beginning of football season, like, yep. Since this is a, a bit of a drought for for sports, we'll throw in some slam ball for you. So, I like to think I don't know if this is is slam ball reemerged as a new league like this year, or is what I'm hoping is the case is that it just went underground and they were just random people without being on television or anything just doing slam ball this entire time, and now it's just reemerged as something that. ESPN has decided to promote. Do you think yeah, there was yeah. underground slam ball? Like well, under I mean, undercover, like there I mean it's not underground. Out. I guess it's not underground because it's not like I don't think they're like it's not illegal or anything. But no, like, yeah. Like it was popular and it was a thing. And then instead of just the league dying away, it's just people just forgot it existed. But it continued to like there's some 40 year old grizzled slam ball veterans who have been playing since, since 2004. <laughs> and now they're, now they're still, they're still getting at it. And now they're back in the limelight. That's yeah. What I'm hoping I mean, from I what I've seen so far, I don't think any of the previous players um, <laughs> are still playing. Yeah. Like, like some of them got to be 40 years old and, yeah, that that sport as a forty year old, I imagine, would be pretty rough on your body. Um, but I imagine like people still played like even though there was like this period where slam ball wasn't really like uh, publicized. I'm sure people were still playing because they have those courts that are specially designed for slam yeah. ball, right? They have the trampolines and the floor and everything. So yeah. I can't imagine that those were just abandoned buildings that were not getting any use. But I imagine it was kind of more of like a private a private thing like people would go pay to play slam ball or whatever at those facilities Probably. yeah stuff like that but then they didn't have the the league going or whatever yeah, i don't know yeah that maybe that could be they could have the the all-star returns of the previous slam ballers come and play like there's a bunch of 40 or 50 year old guys <laughs> jumping around on trampolines colliding okay. into each other a lot of broken hips, I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. But anyways, 
I don't know. Maybe some of them are the coaches now. I haven't paid too much attention to that, but maybe some of those players are now the coaches of the teams. So, yeah, I don't know. Well, anyways, so, but other than that in the sports world, college football is right around the corner, Brady. I feel like I can almost taste it. You know, it's like, it's right there. We're a few weeks out. So I know you're dying to get into the discussion with uh, kind of the wide, uh, the landscape of college football, what um, the entirety is looking at, and then also specifically uh, BYU, you know, how their season is, uh, the kind of a season preview for them. So, yeah, so I guess let's just jump into it, right? Yeah, so before we get into BYU and we talk about the up the upcoming football season, let's take a minute uh, and discuss some college football realignment because in the past few weeks since our last episode, there's been some monumental changes in the college football landscape that will begin to take place in 2024 with uh, Oregon and Washington. So a year ago, USC and UCLA announced they're going to go to the Big Ten. And then in the past couple weeks here, Oregon and Washington have also been accepted as Big Ten members, although they will receive a partial share. I'm not sure exactly if those specific numbers have been released for those two schools, but they will join the Big Ten as full members, but the amount of TV revenue that they get will not be the full amount of TV revenue that will... Uh, the Big Ten kind of, I think, took advantage of their precarious situation and said, yeah, we'll let you in, but on cheap kind of thing. But they're going to the Big Ten. And then that lead left the rest of the Pac-12 um, in a state of uh, disorganization. They're unhappy with George Klyovkov in his efforts with the Pac-12 brass in securing a TV deal themselves for the conference. Uh, reported that they were only going to get $22 million a year plus whatever bonuses Apple TV Plus would provide them and that most of their games would be streaming only. So they wouldn't get <clears throat> they wouldn't get very much very many eyes on their games and they would make less than the Big Twelve who their their current T V deal, which was renewed a year ago, every Big Twelve team is going to get around thirty one million dollars a year. So it'd be less than the Big Twelve and um significantly less than the Big Twelve and less national broadcasts for that deal. So basically all the Pac-12s looked at that deal and said, we're not doing that. And so Oregon and Washington left. Colorado left first, actually. They left before and went to the Big 12. They were already unhappy. And then after all that happened, we now have Arizona, Arizona State, and Utah uh, deciding to jump ship and join the Big 12, leaving Cal, Stanford, Oregon State, and Washington State as the Pac-4 left. Uh, and they still don't have a home yet. They're still in the Pac-12, Pac just four teams left, and remains to be seen um, what will happen to them. We'll talk more about them in a minute. But let's focus on the, on the BYU side of this primarily with the four new additions to the Big 12, Colorado, the Arizona schools, and, and most uh, dramatically – for this purpose of this podcast, Utah. What are your initial thoughts, Jordan, on this shift for the Big 12 and uh, and your view on what this means for BYU and what this means for the Big 12 itself? Yeah, overall, like I'm, I'm happy about this shift because 
uh, it does a few things, I think, for BYU. Number one, it brings your rival, Utah, back into the conference picture so that you're having, you know, more, they're more regularly on the schedule. Like they'll be there every year. Whereas in the past, mm-hmm. I know, few, like five years or so, it's kind of been inconsistent year on and year off, whether or not we get that awesome rivalry game that's really fun to have. So it's good to have them back in the same conference. And then I think also part of what it does is, you know, with Colorado, Arizona, Arizona State, those are pretty respectable programs, but there are respectable programs that I think are programs that traditionally BYU has had success against, like particularly Arizona um, and Arizona State. Uh, so it's it gives you a few, like, you know, a few other programs in the Big 12 that are more beatable, you know, that, you know, me, because, you know, you're already competing with the Oklahoma's or Oklahoma State. Well, I guess Oklahoma only for one more year. But, you know, like Oklahoma State, Kansas State that kind of have more uh, more firm, like like more of a firm foothold in the Big 12. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it kind of gives you uh, some easier teams, I guess. They're fun teams and they're regional. Right. So now BYU yeah. has travel partners. They have some yeah. geographical potential rivalries. Arizona and Arizona State back in the day used to be in the whack with mm-hmm. Utah and BYU. So they're kind of re-establishing some of these connections. Mm-hmm. But like you said, they're not unbeatable. So like if mm-hmm. Washington and Oregon went to the Big 12, that would have been great for the Big 12. But we saw what it looks like when BYU plays Washington, Oregon, because they just have a different, like the past several years, BYU hasn't been close to those schools and those are small sample sizes right it depends on the year Mm -hmm. but it's just an example of those teams have a different caliber of athlete and if they're if they're doing well that's that those are tough teams to beat especially on the road for a team like BYU but Arizona Arizona State Colorado those are beatable Mm -hmm. teams right and and then of course Utah like you said uh there's a lot of back and forth, I think, with BYU fans. A lot of BYU fans kind of are like, yeah, we don't really need Utah again. Uh, we like, and, and I kind of understand it. Uh, it's going to be the best rivalry in the Big 12, which is great. Great for the conference, and it is good for college football. It's great for college sports that they'll play every year in every sport. And it'll be a conference game, so it'll be have more meaning than even the independent era. Uh, where it, where for Utah, it was kind of like, okay, okay, we play BYU. And they did happen to win pretty much every time. But if they lost, it doesn't really matter because their goal is to get to the Pac-12 championship game. Now those goals line. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also been, there's a fair bit of, of pretty intense, mean-spirited hatred between small portions of the fan bases. I think the vast majority of Utah fans and BYU fans are your typical rivals that like they jab at each other and they talk smack and they don't like each other, but like a lot of them are related. <laughs> like in yeah. family or uh, like like yeah. they know each other, they're friends. It's not something that's like an actual problem. But I think there is a pretty significant not well let me rephrase that. Not a pretty significant. There's a a loud minority of people who use this rivalry as a as an avenue to talk about religious things or things that are but that are pretty can be pretty toxic uh mm-hmm. especially online and in forums and stuff like that um and sometimes in games you've seen examples of of like utah students doing things that are um 
disrespectful of of the church, even though you know the University of Utah receives millions of dollars from the church and and like forty percent of their student population is yeah LDS. But like there's a lot of toxicity that exists in this rivalry that is different from a lot of other college football rivalries. So I understand why some people would want it to go away, but from a national perspective and from a fun sports perspective, pretty excited that it'll be back. Yeah. I mean, do you feel like that? Because I feel like um, a lot of other schools, when BYU plays them, also has like similar animosity, you know, where they bring up like kind of the the religious um, things as well. Do you think that's been worse with the Utah rivalry in the recent history than like other schools in particular? I, I can't I can't speak to that specifically since I I grew up in Texas and so I I've had never been to one of those games before and growing up those games were like on Mountain West television or something yeah. like they were even hard to watch so I can't That's speak to, to that as yeah. I've just heard that from, from yeah. older heads who have yeah. discussed that before but like you said it's not it's not exclusively a Utah issue like Oregon mm-hmm. issues with Oregon. Last year, USC, the year before, a lot of the Pac-12 schools, which is one of the reasons that I'm not sad at all that the Pac-12 is disintegrated. It's there, but that's discussion for another day. So it's not a Utah-specific issue, but um, I think it would be most likely for any other school that BYU would play on their schedule for that that kind of thing to happen Mm -hmm. at the University of Utah, or even at when playing the University of Utah or or more likely in online forums or things like that where there's discussion without recourse. It's just more toxic than other places. Yeah. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Yeah, hopefully it can it can be a positive, you know, thing and then it'll just really refuel the rivalry. And like you said, I think that will really make it fun for the Big Twelve. And since it'll be have implications for uh, like who is coming out on top of the Big 12. I think that'll make it even more fun. Uh, something I wanted to talk about as well is, you know, after this addition uh, of these four other teams, the Big 12 is now going to be scaled up to 16 teams. Um, so how do you think the Big 12 organization should go forward? Because that's really, you know, that's kind of a lot of teams to manage. And then also there's some uh, regional and geographical uh, things to consider, I think was how the teams are are laid. So how do you think, the organization of the Big 12 should look going forward? Well, I would say that divisions probably is not the way to go for football because if you do it, if you do two divisions like have traditionally been done in many conferences, that means that you won't play teams in the other division for a long cycle. It'll be a long time before you get a home and home with UCF if you're BYU, for example, mm-hmm. assuming they're in different divisions. Um, and if you're in the same conference, you should be playing each other relatively regularly, in my opinion. So what I would prefer is either go the SEC route, probably the SEC route in this situation where you have one protected rival and then every, and then you play the seven other seven schools and then you swap every year with the rest of the seven. So BYU, for example, BYU would play Utah every single year. Mm-hmm. And then the other 14 schools, they would swap with swapping seven and seven every year. So every four years you'd play 
home and away against every team. Yeah. Um, so that's what I think would be best. And the reason I would think it'd be best is because there's not that many rivalries in the Big 12. There's Arizona, Arizona State. There's BYU, Utah. There's Kansas, Kansas State. There's Iowa State, Kansas State, and Farmageddon. It's a great name for a rivalry. And then there's TCU, Baylor. Wait, sorry, that's the that's the Iowa State Kansas State rivalry. Yeah, uh huh. Farmageddon. 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 Oh my goodness, that's yeah. great. It's great. Nice. Um, but I think that's the only school. So Kansas State is the only school in the Big Twelve that I am aware of that has a second like official rival that they are rivals with Iowa State and Kansas. And so, but Kansas is the big one. So the Farmageddon, you could move to a every other year situation, I think, and. People would be sad about it, but that's it's not a big deal. It's not their primary rival. And that's kind of it. There's not really that many other traditional rivalries mm -hmm. yeah. in the conference. So I don't really see an advantage because you could do a pod system where you go four teams and four pods. And so you play the three other teams in your pod every year. So if you did a pod with BYU, it would probably be Arizona, Arizona State, Utah, BYU. And so every year BYU would play Utah, Arizona, Arizona State. And maybe that would help formulate some more rivalries. So there's an argument there of if you get more familiarity with these teams that more rivalries develop, and that's probably good for the conference. Um, so I don't know. Those are kind of my two options uh, that I see as being viable is the four pods and then or the one uh, protected rivalry, and then you just rotate everybody else. I don't know what you think, Jordan. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. I think that sounds like a good system because we've brought it up before where we, we don't like the system of having like the, the the regional divisions where the champion from the one division and the champion from the other division end up playing each other in the championship game. Like that's how the SEC used to be, right? Yeah. Um, Because uh, it doesn't really necessarily mean that you have the two best teams in the yeah. conference playing each other. So I mm -hmm. think not having that kind of a setup is good overall for the conference because you want you want the two best teams playing each other in the Big 12 championship and then going on to represent the Big 12 in the college football playoff, potentially, you know, if, yeah. if that's the case. Yeah. Uh, so I think, yeah, I think not having that kind of system is good. Um, and then, yeah, I think, yeah, just trying to switch it around and then, but then having the rival protected, um, it, I think it brings up an interesting point because you do have a few new teams coming into the Big Twelve. Like the one that comes to mind is Houston, which has you know you know close regional ties with other teams in the Big Twelve, like you know Baylor and Texas Tech. So that's a a pretty big potential to form a new rivalry there. Uh, how long do you think it takes for like a rivalry to develop? Like how many years would you have to give it? How many games? you know, until you're able to develop a rivalry like that. I mean, in my opinion, I think that differs on who you ask, but in my opinion, this is more from a Texas perspective, is um, it a rivalry, a actual rivalry where you call it a rivalry takes decades. Like it takes a mm -hmm. long, you need history yeah. and tradition for a rival to be a real rival. Like for example, TCU and West Virginia don't like Texas. Like, 
I don't know why West Virginia doesn't like Texas. They have no reason to other than they've just decided they don't like Texas. But like when they release their schedule, they'll like put the Longhorn upside down as opposed to all the other logos. They really don't. I don't know why, but they don't like Texas. But they've only played for a decade and Texas has no history with them. So from Texas perspective, just because you don't like us doesn't mean it's a rivalry mm-hmm. yeah. kind of thing. So like BYU and Boise State, they didn't have a history, but they were building a rivalry. If they had continued to play for another 20, 30 years, then they probably would have been become a more official rivalry. Like you could have added them to the Utah, Utah State mm-hmm. um, category of legitimate rivals. But now, especially since they're not going to play regularly again, they're just kind of a regional opponent that's interesting. Um, but not like a rival. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because, yeah, I but, guess it's like, where do you draw the line with the rival? Because I think a lot of times some schools think that they're rivals with other schools. And then... uh but then the other school actually doesn't think that, which I find it surprising that you mentioned Utah State in that discussion, because I think we've had that discussion with Utah State where from sometimes from a BYU fan perspective, like we don't really think that we're rivals necessarily with Utah State, but Utah State always does think that we are. So I don't know. I thought that was interesting that you brought that up. So well, I think I think in that situation, because of the history, I mean, there's there is a, a lot there's, of history. There's a trophy, right? right? So. There's a trophy for the game. Yeah. Second wheel. And there's history. They played a long time. There's a lot of. It's a game that now it's definitely true. Utah State cares way more about like when Utah State be, beats BYU, that's a much bigger deal yeah. than if BYU beats Utah State. But it still is a technical official rivalry. I would consider it, and yeah. that's because of the history and, tra- and the tradition, not because Utah State is on the same. I've made level. it competitive. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And so that's why yeah. I think to answer your that's because a good example for your question is that I think it requires time. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah. So. So yeah, but but then that like begs the question: if you are going to have like your protective rival situation every year, if that only applies to BYU and Utah, I guess it doesn't matter. For, yeah, it doesn't really matter for the rest of the schools. I guess they'll just switch up every other year. But if you're only playing the teams every other year, does that even expand um, how long it takes to develop a rivalry like that? Yeah, could potentially. I think that's a good argument for the pod system, right? Because yeah. that gives you. If you played, that'd be a different discussion of who do, who would you want to be in BYU's pod. But if it was Arizona, Arizona State, Utah, then that does provide a much greater possibility for like Arizona to, within a decade, become a more official rival. Like of a rival. Yeah. So in the pod system, it would be like four teams in each pod. You play those teams every year and then the other teams would switch up because you'd still have a few other conference games to schedule. And then you just rotate those every year with the rest yeah. of the teams in the conference. Yeah. Ideally you'd play nine game conference schedule. And so you have three teams that you play every year and then six teams that rotate. Okay. Yeah. So it's still now there in that, in that situation that leaves um, at least two teams that you don't play on that four year cycle. So there'd be at least two teams that it takes a long time yeah. to play them. And so in that way, it's not ideal, but it does provide the consistent scheduling. Is there a team outside of Utah that you would really want to play more than one or more than 
like you'd really want to play every year if you could like on a consistent basis yeah yeah like um, if you, if you had your pod and you could choose the three other schools who would they be yeah i don't know if there really is anyone necessarily but something that i would be like from a BYU fan perspective you know, obviously one of the big things from the Big 12 is you want to make sure that you're getting those matchups with the more respectable programs that are going to put you in the conversation for a potential spot in the college football playoff. So like Oklahoma State, uh, Kansas State, TCU. So I think as long as you're balancing it out, so each year you're playing at least one or two of those teams, I think that's kind of, from a BYU fan perspective, I think that's what you're looking for. I don't think there's necessarily a team like, oh, yes, we want to play TCU every year or something like that. So yeah. uh, I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm i kind of along those lines too. Uh, I I think Baylor would be a fun yeah. school to play to play on a yearly basis. I would like that. I think that's there's an interesting one. The connections there now there's, with Jeff Grimes and everything. So Yeah, it's, it's private baptist university they've played a few games that were really exciting and the fan bases seem to get along pretty well at least in the short term they have a lot of similarities it'd be a good bridge to connect the two universities together um but if they were to do a pod system i would be pretty shocked if byu and baylor were in the same pod yeah that wouldn't really make much sense like you're not going right, to you're not going to no. split up texas tech baylor and tcu i don't think and so, yeah, the pods would be hard because there's, I think there's some, there's some clean breaks, except for when you get to the East, when there's West Virginia, Cincinnati, and UCF. And then there's not really a fourth team that fits with those schools. You could, yeah. you could throw Houston in there because the other Texas schools don't really care that much about Houston yet. But then you have a pretty easy pod where you have Cincinnati, you have Cincinnati, UCF, uh, West Virginia and Houston. That's pretty. Yeah, that pretty weak very pod, even. Yeah, as opposed to the other Texas pod, which would then probably be like TCU, Tech, Baylor, and Oklahoma State. Like that's pretty rough, but it makes the most sense in terms of rivalries. And then you have the West, and then kind of the Midwest, and you throw Colorado in there. Colorado, Kansas State, Kansas, Iowa State, and they have Big Twelve history. So some of that makes sense, but that what to do with that fourth pod and who gets squished over to the east, there'd be some arguments with that as well. But I think it's interesting. I, yeah, I bet they follow the the SEC model uh, with the one protected rivalry because there's just not that there's not enough history for schools to be like. I would. I would throw a major fit if I didn't get to play this other school as well in the same way that the SEC like like for Texas being in the SEC if they don't play Oklahoma and A&M every year then like what are you doing like why are those mm -hmm. why are you in the same conference if those schools or or Alabama and Auburn and Alabama and Tennessee something like that like those are big history rivalries that there's more than one for a lot of the schools that need to happen and that's just not really the case in the Big 12. Yeah. And I guess one one last thought for me on conference realignment that I think is interesting that no one's, I don't know if anyone's really talked about that I haven't seen very much of, is the Big 12 made some great moves with Brett Yormark and getting a TV deal solidified that put pressure on the Pac-12. 
But the, the thing that's helped the Big 12 the most is that nobody else wanted any of the Big 12 schools after Texas and Oklahoma left. Whereas the Pac-12, they, they had four big brands. They had Oregon, Washington, USC, UCLA. From a TV perspective, TV money perspective. And the Big 12 had a bunch of mediocre schools that like the Big Ten didn't want and the SEC didn't want. And because no one wanted them, they banded together and were stable. And that stability and their their stable, their contract that they were able to get made them a better option for the Pac-12 schools. Um, so it's really the Big 12's mediocrity that saved them, ironically. Yeah. That's kind of interesting. And I was just thinking of this. This is kind of funny for you, I guess, as a Texas and BYU fan to have this transition into a new era of the Big 12. Because, you know, you grew up with the Big 12, uh, you know, following the Longhorn Network and all that stuff. Um, But now you're transitioning to – it's a completely – an entirely different Big 12 that you're looking at now, but now as a BYU fan instead of a Texas fan as they're transitioning to the SEC. So that's it's, a, it's, it's a very strange thing to follow because I have like two hats. I have my Texas hat that I put on. And I say, screw you, Big 12. Good riddance. We're off to the SEC where we're going to make way more money, have uh, do better in recruiting, play way more interesting schools, uh, and not have crappy leadership like we've had for the past two decades and all of that is true and as a texas fan i'm happy to be gone and i get to play AM again i get to play arkansas again there's a lot of talk about people being sad with realignment that like realignment is destroying history and college rivalries and things was like well i mean byu and utah are gonna play again Mm -hmm. and texas is gonna play a&m and arkansas again and like there's there's not all destroying it's actually in some ways it's Colorado's back in the Big 12. Like there's revitalizing a lot of the revitalizing in some ways. Mm-hmm. But then I put my BYU hat on and I'm like, yeah, go Big 12. Right. And like, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it definitely is a step up for BYU and there. Oh, program, it's huge. So. Yeah. Massive. Because it, it, it's this is the thing that's uh, BYU is very fortunate to be where they are because they very well could be Oregon State and Washington State right now mm-hmm. who yeah. are just on the outside. They're one of the last few that aren't in the club now. But they got in and they're early and now we're in the club. We're power five or power four now. Power mm-hmm. four. And we're in the club. And if something happens, they'll probably be included in whatever the next phase of whatever happens with college football. They're they're on the inside and that's where they've wanted to be for decades. And so that's it's great. BYU. I think it's really interesting to think about the narrative of you know, BYU, when the Mountain West was calling, falling, falling apart and they were looking for other conferences to join, you know, thought about the Big 12, thought about the Pac-12, didn't end up getting placed anywhere. So went independent for football and went to the WCC for basketball. You know, it makes me wonder how things would have played out differently. Like, because, you know, there was that whole, all the politics that were surrounding the, the Pac-12 really not letting BYU in yep. uh, mm-hmm. to the conference because of, you know, all the, all the crap you know various reasons that they would get various reasons um i almost wonder if it's better off in the long run for byu to have not ever entered into the past you know i mean now you look at the pac 12 that's completely disintegrated would they have been able to get to the spot that they are now or would they be like you said would they be where 
Oregon State and Washington State are now. So I don't know. It's kind of interesting to think about. Yeah, I I think it's a great fit for BYU. I think it's been an excellent outcome for them, mm-hmm. uh, even though it's been harder. I do think it is funny, like we talked about, Arizona Arizona State left the WAC in like the 80s or late 70s or something. Um, and now they're in the Big 12 after all that. After all that, they're back in the Big 12. And Utah left the Pac-12, and now they're in the Big 12. And TCU left Mountain West to go to the Big 12, and they're in the Big 12. And BYU got left, went independent. And now they're in, like all these schools that were yeah. associated at one point or another all disintegrated. Now they're all back in yeah. this new conference, but they've in a better, they're all in a better situation than they were before. So it's, it's good and positive for yeah. everyone, except for uh, honestly, except for Utah, Utah is probably sad about the PAC 12 because they were succeeding there since the PAC 12 has been down, yeah. recently. Like but they'll probably succeed being the PAC 12 champion. Yeah. They'll probably succeed in the big 12. Like mm-hmm. they're probably yeah. the best football program in the big 12 now. Is that accurate on a regular basis? Because there are teams that on year to year, like TCU and Baylor certainly have had really good seasons, but as a consistent over the past 15 year period, 20 year period, probably for Utah since Urban Meyer was there, they've been a top 25 team almost every year. Yeah. During that period. I think that's accurate because yeah, like you said, all those teams, like they have really good years, but not, not consistent, you know, not consistency over multiple years in a row. But like, because I think there's always going to be either Oklahoma State, Kansas State, Texas Tech, TCU, or Baylor. Baylor. You can throw Iowa State in there too. Like, it's, it's yeah, crazy because like all those teams are going to be competitive. Someone's uh, going to be good. One, yeah, it's, out of that group, someone's going to be really good uh, out of those teams. But um, yeah. Are you sad at all to see the Pac-12 kind of disintegrate or are you no. are you happy? I'm I'm a little sad for Washington State and Oregon State. I don't have anything against those programs specifically, and they they're the ones that kind of get left out to dry here. Um, I'm not sad for Stan, for Stanford and Cal, yeah, at all. Uh, kind of, kind of uh, not happy, but I don't see that. I don't feel bad that they're suffering. Because they're some of the they're to me they're the representation of arrogance for the Pac-12 in a variety of different ways. Like all of their Pac-12 leadership that's been awful the past fourteen years of being like we're too good for these schools that don't meet our whatever academic standards we have or or we think we're going to get paid as much as the Big Ten or we're going to make alliances with the Big Ten. Uh, without any kind of like fear of uh, contract teeth or any kind of uh, this, this night, this naive belief that this alliance was just going to be purely uh, good and there weren't going to be any issues. And then the big 10 basically said, yeah, we'll be your partner. And while we're doing that, we'll talk to USC and UCLA and, uh, use that as a opportunity to steal those from you because y'all are dumb. Like there's a lot of the representation of the PAC 12 that why they've died that I think lies within the stuffiness of Stanford and Cal. So I don't mind Mm -hmm. at all that they're left behind. And I hope there's talks of the ACC thinking at some of those 
schools, particularly the presidents who are interested in academics, adding them to the conference, which is another example of the ACC might be the next conference to go because they don't understand what's going on either because they have Florida yeah. State and North Carolina and Clemson and, Clemson, and some other yeah. schools upset the ACC saying, hey, we have a contract that goes out to like 3036 or 2036. Might 30, well be, 36. I, it might as well be 3036. Yeah, yeah. There's no way they're getting to the end of that. And we're not making enough money. And uh, you guys don't understand that if we wait until 2036 and we're $30 million behind the SEC each one of those years, there's no way we're going to be able to compete in the long run. And then those same leaders of the ACC are thinking that adding Cal to their athletic conference, which is what, that's what it is. It's an athletic conference primarily, that that's a good idea. Nobody cares about Cal sports, any sports. Maybe they have one or two Olympic sports that are okay, but like they're awful. They're one of the worst yeah. power five programs in terms of support, in terms of product. Um, so the ACC might be the next naive, naive group of leadership to see in the next few years. When I'm trying to remember, so with the ACC teams and their current contract deal, are those teams pretty trapped though? I thought that's like, I thought that Clemson and North Carolina are really kind of trapped in their position that they're in, or is there a way for them to get out? So that's, that'll be interesting to see in the, in the months and years coming because yes, essentially because their contract is, till 2036 the buyout would be astronomical to get out yeah. of the contract because yeah. they have to buy out of all of the years forward mm -hmm. which essentially makes it impossible to get out in the near future but um florida state is hiring and maybe some of the other schools miami or some of the other schools are hiring lawyers to try to figure out if there's a way to essentially get out of the contract or if there's mm, some kind yeah. of legal reasoning that they can make so they're my understanding is there's some active parties that are seeking alternative options in that conference. Um, so that will be the, that's kind of the, the eyes have shifted a little bit to the ACC now, and it probably nothing will happen in the short term, but, um, but if you think about the big 10, the SEC and the big 12 have all within the past year or two, have renewed their football contracts and all of them are scheduled to renew again before the ACC. Their, their uh, contract gets up. Yeah. Or their contract gets up. So if it's not now, whenever those, like if the big 12 comes back in 2031 with a new contract again, which will probably be higher than what they're getting now at 31 million per team, the ACC at that point, if they still exist, will once again be mad and say the Big 12 is doing it so much better than we are, not to mention the SEC and the Big 10. So it's very fascinating. It's very interesting. Yeah, that is very interesting to think about. I guess we've probably talked about it enough, but maybe to summarize our discussion with the conference realignment, what do you think should happen with the rest of the teams in the in the Pac-12 or the Pac-4 now? What, what in your mind is the best case scenario? Um, I think that they they're... I don't know because I don't know what Cal and Sanford want to do. Let's just assume for the purposes of this conversation, they're going to continue to play sports and play football. That because Cal, honestly, Cal might just fold in the towel and be like, oh, we're just not going to, 
we're just not going to play football because we don't want to. That's that's an actual possibility. Wow, I hadn't but thought about that, but okay, yeah. And and Stanford could also do that for football. They would probably keep all their Olympic sports because they're really good at a lot of other sports. But it's possible that those schools are just like, yeah, we're just not going to play football anymore because the alternative is either going independent, which is going to be rough for those schools, or they join the Mountain West because the Mountain West, similar to what we were just talking about with the ACC, the teams being locked in, the Mountain West teams are locked in uh, for a few years. So they can't just jump to the Pac-12. What I would imagine, and, and really, why would they at this point? So what I see happening is Oregon State and Washington, definitely those schools are going to eventually join the Mountain West and potentially Cal and Stanford due to lack of options and an unwillingness to stay independent if they can swallow their pride, which like we stated before, that's a big pill, quite literally a big thing to swallow for them. And I don't know if they will, they may literally quit before they are willing to do that. Uh, they might have to join the Mountain West. And if you're the Mountain West, now you probably, there's a possibility you rebrand, maybe you, Maybe it's emerging and it becomes the Pac West or something like that. Mm, yeah. Right. That's what I see as the most likely option. I'd be pretty surprised if the ACC actually voted Cal and Stanford. I don't really know why the Big 12 didn't yeah. want them. It wouldn't make a lot of sense. And yeah. the Atlantic Athletic Conference or whatever <laughs> have, the, have, the, have Cal and Stanford on the Pacific Ocean. Not that that really matters these days, but it's even more strange than some of the other um, conference realignment. Yeah. It does seem things. even more of a stretch than like, you know, USC and UCLA yeah. in the big 10. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But anyways, yeah. Pretty crazy. Lots of fun stuff. Lots of speculation and things to think about, but at the end of the day, we'll just have to see how things play out. Um, so, okay. Well, I think that, wraps up our discussion with conference realignment and everything. So the next thing that we wanted to jump in and talk about was um, the BYU season preview. Cause you know, we're obviously the connection to Provo with the Provo pick and roll podcast is strong. So you want to break down how we see their season playing out. And, you know, with the, with this first year being the first year in the big 12 and everything, how we think that that will, will shape up. So yeah. Where do you want to start Brady? Well, I guess probably we should just look at the roster first, Jordan, and mm -hmm. just get a basis for where BYU's at, who who have they lost, who they got coming in, what kind of team are we going to see in a couple weeks when they play Sam Houston. Um, first note, before we actually get to the players, is there's a few significant changes to the coaching staff, strength and conditioning, and most primarily the defensive coordinator position uh, has changed. And with that comes a scheme change. Probably we'll see a lot less drop eight uh, zone coverage and a lot more kind of aggressive aggressive man coverage attack the quarterback um, play downhill style from BYU um, with with a with a four down front I think they're going to play four offensive or defensive linemen in this in this front as well they'll play either a four three defense or a more of a nickel style with four defensive linemen, two linebackers, and then you have your nickel corner. Um, that's my understanding. You're going to see more of that style with this defense. 
which we have been calling for in a lot of ways uh, in the past, if you listen to our previous podcasts. But it does provide a, a little bit of a scary first couple of years because the mm-hmm. personnel required to run that kind of aggressive defense is uh, different than what they were running. And with that, there's been a lot of changes. So let's look at the changes. First, who's, who's BOU lost um, this year? You have Jaron Hall, of course, drafted Minnesota Vikings. Uh, really good player for BOU is gone. Chris Brooks and Lopini Katoa are gone from the running back position. Puka Nakua, who just scored a touchdown in his first preseason game with the Rams, he's gone. Brady Christensen, their left tackle, um, is gone as well. Mason Wake is retired, and uh, Wilgar, their linebacker, has been there for a few years, is gone. So those are all guys you're going to have to replace that went to the draft or went to the uh, NFL. And then there's several people in the portal as well, who have transferred out that you may know. George Udo, who is a cornerback who he played off and on. I think he should have played more than when he was at BYU, but he he's kind of a marginal player. He went to Cincinnati. Logan Peely didn't really play that much. Uh, Gabriel Judy, um, he went to Tennessee. He's a cornerback who played some last year, but he's replaceable. One of the biggest losses, these are the two biggest losses, I think, from the transfer portal. Clark Barrington, um, All-American level uh, offensive lineman, gone to Baylor with his brother Campbell Barrington. Clark will play in the NFL. He's going to get drafted next year, so that is a significant loss. And then Keenan Peely uh, is a linebacker for POIU who's played the past several years, been one of their best defensive players when he's been healthy. He went to Tennessee as well. So you also lose Dallin Holker, backup tight end, who went to Colorado State because BYU had never thrown the ball, which is fair. He was highly underutilized, in my opinion. They kept running tight end screens to him. That's how they decided to use Dallin Holker in the offense, was to run screens occasionally. Yep, very strange. Yeah. Um, And then also, this is old. Maybe this shouldn't be considered. This was more last year, but Logan Fano. Went to Utah. He was a four-star recruit who, if he had stayed healthy last year, probably would have started on as a defensive end, as a true freshman. And that says something about BYU's defensive line talent as well as he's pretty good. So, But maybe that one's not something to consider because he never really played for BYU. And those are pretty much the big names. So there's several significant losses. Um, anyone particular stand out to you? It's going to be tough to replace. I mean, obviously, Jaron Hall is the biggest loss at the quarterback. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's the biggest thing. So, like, from, from all of those, from the offensive side of the ball perspective, it seems like the biggest losses are at quarterback and at running back. That pretty much depleted both all the players that are involved there in those situations. Um, maybe a bit, you could talk about the offensive line, too. But... um. And then, but from a defensive perspective, I think they're still pretty good because all of the positions that they lost, I think they have still pretty good options there. Um, So, uh, yeah, and I guess what we'll talk about coming up, it seems like the positions that were kind of left vacant, they were able to fill pretty well through the transfer portal. Um, So, yeah. Yeah, and so to that, 
to that point, when you look at the players now coming in, mm-hmm. the transfer portal to BYU, um, you have A.J. Vong Pachong from Utah State. He's an experienced linebacking uh, linebacker there who will likely start for BYU this year. He kind of replaces Keenan Peely in that position. Caleb Etienne is a big offensive tackle for Oklahoma State. He's like 6'8" like 320 or something. He's a big guy. Um, and so that provides some power five depth. He's probably going to be a starter at right tackle. I'm going to move Kingsley to Amatia to the left tackle position and slide in Caleb Etienne in the right tackle position. But um, as a caveat, Caleb Etienne was replaced on the depth chart at Oklahoma State. So the reason he went to BYU is because he was about to lose his job mm. at Oklahoma State. And Oklahoma State didn't have a good offensive line last year. Uh Spencer Spencer uh, Sanders was frequently running for his life at Oklahoma State. So he's a big talent. He's a big athletic guy, and I hope he's, you know, I hope he does well. But I, I, I don't have super high expectations for him. But he will be a starter, so it's an important get. Regardless, they needed somebody at that position uh, with experience, and he does provide that. Um, Dion Smith is a running back from Colorado. Who's he's fine. Nothing particularly special, but he adds to the depth of that position and helping replace Christopher Books and Lopita Katoa. Um, Eddie Heckard is a cornerback from Weber State that came over to follow his defensive coordinator, Jay Hill. And he's like a, he's a three-time um, all-conference player at the Division II level for Weber State. And uh, one time last year, or last year or two years ago, he was All-American at that division level. And Weber State's been really good for the for their division for the past decade or so under Jay Hill. So I think he's a, he's like 5'11", 190, athletic guy. He's a pretty good pickup, I think. And he already knows the systems, able to teach everyone else how that works. And the cornerback position, specifically with this new defense, a lot more man coverage, a lot more responsibilities for the corners not to get beat. That's an important pickup. So Eddie Heckard helps there. Um, Harrison Taggart is a linebacker. He was a four-star recruit that went to Oregon, who's transferred to BYU as a redshirt freshman now. Hasn't really played very much, but he's talented. He's fast. He's a little undersized, but he's fast. And so he adds more depth, once again, helping to try to replace Keenan Peely and Wilgar as well at those positions in the linebacking core. Um... You have some help on the defensive line with Isaiah Bagna and Jackson Cravens from Boise State. Those guys are, they're just experienced defensive linemen, not super game-changing players, but they add depth at a position that needs it because there hasn't been hardly any production from the defensive line in the past couple of years. And then the two biggest, well, also Darius Laster is a wide receiver from Eastern Michigan who he's like 6'3", 200, he's pretty fast. Had like 400-something yards receiving last year. So he he's a good pickup as well. And then the two biggest pickups for the team are uh, Aiden Robbins from UNLV. He's from Louisville. He's a four-star recruit when he was at came out of Louisville. Transferred to UNLV last year and then ran for 1,000 yards. And he's big. He's like 6'3", like 230. He's a big old running back. He's similar to Chris Brooks in terms of his his size on paper, but he's more agile. He's more uh, powerful. Chris Brooks was kind of 
he wasn't very fast. He was kind of a tight bowling ball. Uh, wasn't very flexible. Didn't have very good contact balance. Aiden Robbins is more athletic at a similar weight, and and he's a little taller even. I I'm really excited about him. I think he's going to be he's going to be RB one, and he's going to be a good player for BYU as running back position. And then lastly, Keaton Slovis, uh, their starting quarterback, coming in from Pitt. Um, and he's gonna he's gonna be QB one clearly, and uh, and uh, excited to see what we get from him. He's had a little bit of an up and down career. He was really good his freshman year at USC. Played BYU that year. We were at that game, I think, mm-hmm, when yeah. BYU beat USC. Um, and since then, he's been a little bit up and down. But there's been he's had some injuries. He's played. He hasn't played with the same offensive coordinator or the same weapons that he was hoping to. Um, had some injuries there. And so he has a lot of experience and has some talent and is in a quarterback-friendly offense with some decent weapons on the outside. And we'll see how it goes. But anyone you're specifically excited about or or have any thoughts on any of the incoming transfers for BYU? Yeah, for sure. So from, from the offensive side of the ball, I'm also really excited about Aiden Robbins because I feel like something that's really important for BYU, as we've mentioned in the past, is that they can establish their running game to open up the passing game. And I think a player like Aiden Robbins really fits in well for that because hopefully, like, even if, you know, there's a lot of going to be a lot of question marks with the offensive line with, you know, new people coming in, switching positions and things like that. I think having a good physical running back that can get you consistent yardage, even when maybe the blocking isn't the best, is a good thing to have. Uh, Aiden Robbins, as you mentioned, rushed for over a hundred, a thousand yards last season, averaged around 4.8 yards a carry. So that's, I, you know, that's kind of the thing that we need as opposed to the Lopini Katoa that gets you maybe 2.3 yards per carry. Um, so I think that's going to be a, a great addition for the offense and hopefully we'll take a little bit of pressure off of Keaton Slovis coming into the starting quarterback role. Um, and yeah, like you said, I, I think that's the biggest question mark this year is which version of Keaton Slovis are we going to get? Because freshman Keaton Slovis was amazing. I think he passed for like 3,500 yards, scored like 30 touchdowns and threw like nine interceptions. But this last year, Keaton Slovis came in at 2,300 yards, had 10 touchdowns and nine interceptions. So obviously like just completely different, you know, outlook of what the year looked like. But I think something that we have going is uh, the receiving core for BYU is looking a lot more talented than what they had at Pitt. Um, And something that I think that will work well as in addition to that, is that um, I, I would say probably uh, Keaton Slovis's favorite target this last year was the tight end at Pittsburgh. His name is escaping me right now, but they had some really good success uh, working together. So I think having a player like Isaac Rex um, yeah. will be a you know a good safe target for uh, Keaton Slovis to go to, especially as he's trying to like get his uh, get his feet under himself in this system. So I overall I think things will work well there. Um, but I think something that's going to determine a lot of Keaton Slovis' success is how the offensive line is able to do. Because Keaton Slovis is not the most mobile quarterback, partially due to his... I mean, he had knee injuries, right? I think that's the that's the injuries that he had before. So I think it was like ACL or something. But yeah. um, I think partially due to those, he is a little less mobile as compared to the most quarterbacks, especially... Uh, compared to the quarterbacks that BYU has had the last couple of years, and Jaron Hall yep. and Zach Wilson, so mm-hmm. he's going to need much better protection from the offensive line and a little bit more time to throw in the pocket. Because, I mean, that's what I've seen from him this last year. Because I, I was able to go to Pitt's game versus Duke, 
when he had time to sit in the pocket, he was very effective. But, you know, when the defense was able to get a lot of pressure, he, 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 you know, had some unforced errors and stuff like that. He threw two interceptions in that game. So I think that's going to be one of the big key factors for the offense going into this year. And look, and looking at that, and this will kind of transition a little, a little bit into our next subject, but, um, BYU's pass blocking last year was excellent. They were one of the best pass blocking units in college football. Where they struggled was in the run game and specifically in short yardage, uh, key down run blocking. They were not very good. They were one of the worst teams in the country in terms of power success rate. Uh, and so hopefully they'll be able to turn that around and hopefully Aiden Robbins will be able to help. Um, in that regard. But I think we can fairly say Sua, Kingsley Suamatia is going to be a first-round pick in the NFL draft next year. He has a great left tackle to support him. And Caleb Etienne on the right side, although I have my reservations on how good he will be, he is big and athletic and has, has Power 5 experience. And they have several other guys in the middle that they're going to be rotating in that that uh, are also big, powerful guys and 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 uh, have have some promise as well. So I think the offensive line will be okay, but there are question marks there. And you're right that they they need he needs that protection because he's not as mobile, and um, and the offensive line needs to be better in the run game to be able to set up Slobus for success. Yep. So Jordan, kind of transitioning with that, starting to talk now about strengths and weaknesses of this roster. Um, let's look at the offense first. I want to talk a little bit about what you think the strengths are for the offense, and then we'll talk a little bit about what are the some of the weaknesses or question marks, concerns by by position group. But let's let's talk about the uh, positives first. So, yeah, tell me tell me about the positives for this BOU offense and your expectations going into the season. I mean, the main positive for me, looking at the depth chart is the receiving core, how many people are returning that really had some pretty good success last year. Chase Roberts, he played pretty pretty great. You know, he was one of the favorite targets of uh, Jaron Hall. Uh, Cody Epps, kind of a, more of like a slot receiver, is also pretty effective. We also met, already mentioned Isaac Rex. He's going to be a good, you know, one of the big targets to, to look at. And then Keanu Hill. I feel like between those guys... Um, that that'll be a pretty good core. And then, you know, throwing in other receivers like Darius Lassiter and Keelan Mar- Marion that we got in the transfer yep. portal. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think they have really good depth at, in the, at the receiving position. So I think that's, um, I think that's the main strength. And then kind of already talked about the weakness, like, yeah, I think it's mainly what are we going to get from the quarterback position? Cause yeah. It's kind of funny, you know, you can have great receivers, but if you don't have a quarterback that can get the ball to those receivers, it doesn't do you much good. Yeah, and then to go along with that, with the quarterback position, we don't know what we're going to get for Keaton Slovis, but I think we have a floor that's like, we're not going to be awful. Mm-hmm. He's yeah. going to be okay, at least. And in an offense that hopefully will have a good offensive line and looks like to have a few good running backs, that'll win you some games. It's just, don't be terrible. And I don't think we'll be terrible, but... If Keaton Slovis gets hurt, I have no idea what we're going to see from the quarterback room. Um, because right now we have his his backup is Jake Retzloff, 
Uh, he's, a, he's a junior, a true junior. Haven't seen him play. Don't know. I don't even know what to say about it. I just haven't seen Cade Finnegan. Is I believe he is the transfer from um, Boise State. Who he doesn't really do that much for me. And then you have a true freshman in Ryder Burton, who he probably will be good in a couple of years. He's shown some promise early in camp, but he's a true freshman. I don't want to see him playing this year. So it's pretty going to be probably going to be Jake Retzloff as the backup, and I have no idea what to expect from him. So. Well, yeah, Jake Retzloff is a junior college transfer, so he hasn't played Division One college football at all. So you know that'll be definitely a big shock of a transition and everything. But I. I mean, looking at it a little bit, like he did have a lot of success at that level, at the junior college yeah. level. He played for some college in California. I think he threw for over 3,000 yards. But yeah, I mean, FBS Division One college football is going to be a completely different animal for him. So that is a concern, especially since Caden Slovis does have an injury history. Yeah. So. Hopefully, as they start their two games, first two games are Sam Houston and uh, Southern Utah. Somebody, Utah Tech, I remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Southern Utah. Um, hopefully, we'll get to see some Jake Retzloff play uh, in those first two games. He better, yeah. he better be getting in in those first two games to get some experience. Uh, get to see what he looks like as well. But quarterback depth is a concern for me. Sorry, I was talking about positives. But my other positive is I do like the running back room. I think Aiden Robbins is really good for college football. Uh, great I think he's an upgrade over what anyone we had in the room last year from an athletic yeah. perspective. He is impressive to to watch athletically. Um, so I like him. I like Miles Davis, although from things that I've read, they have him third team right now on the on projected depth charts. That's like not behind Deion Smith, the other transfer, or uh, behind uh, Hinkley Rapati, actually. Oh, really? Who's, oh. who's had some success? He was good yeah, in the bowl he, game. Yeah. And then you have Deion Smith, who he's smaller. Uh, I don't expect too much from him. He has good hands out of the backfield. So he provides a little bit of a different skill set. Probably a good third down back in, in passing situations uh, that can go, come out of the backfield. Um, but even him, he has Power 5 experience, even though it was at Colorado and they were awful. Um, there's some, and, and you also have a freshman coming in, LJ Martin from El Paso, who's uh, looked pretty good. He's another pretty athletic athletic freshman that BYU is excited about. Uh, so they have some depth at running back. I would say overall, their frontline starters on the offense are pretty good. Like they match up with most teams in the Big 12. I would put their starters in the top half of the Big 12, looking at the rest of the conference. Um, tight end, wide receiver, offensive line has some questions, but also some significant talented pieces and quarterback. Right? Like they have, they have, Everything on the front line. The depth is what I'm concerned about, especially going into this season with so many Power Five teams on the schedule on offense. Yep. Is there anything else you want to talk about from the offensive side of the ball? Should we switch over to the defensive? Um, that's pretty much everything I have on the offense. Let's talk about the defense now. Uh, what are your what are your positives looking ahead? I mean. Like you were saying, I think the main positive is going to be, you know, having uh, the defensive coordinator, Jay Hill, coming in uh, and kind of, like you said, kind of making all these changes that we've been begging for for years. Uh, I'll be interested to see how it all works. But I think the personnel that we have right uh, at this point in time is going to be really good for a more aggressive play calling style. 
you know, Ben Bywater, Max Tooley, AJ Vongbachan. I think those are going to be really good, you know, having those linebackers to, you know, put pressure on the quarterback and also to attack the rushing game, uh, along with Tyler Batty coming off the end of the, of the defensive line. Like those names really jump out to me as fitting well in that system because I always feel like those guys had a lot of underutilized talent in the, you know, drop back coverage that BYU is playing a lot last year. So overall, I think that's good from that perspective. But I mean, you kind of mentioned this before. The main thing that I'm concerned with is the secondary. Are, are the secondary going to be able to hold up in this new defensive scheme? We're going they're going to be left out on the islands a little bit more, you know. Uh, maybe not won't have as much security with the drop back zone coverage. Um, I mean, looking at the the depth chart, I, Jacob Robinson. I know he played. I think pretty much. I think he started every game for BYU last year. He was pretty solid. It seemed like he was able to to pursue the ball very well. I remember he had a big play at the end of the SMU game in the conference, uh, or in, in the, the ball uh, game, ball game uh, against uh, where it really kind of sealed the game. He had the game winning tackle, so. He's good. Mike Harper uh, at free safety also is Mm -hmm. pretty good, I feel like. But the other, everyone else, I'm not really sure about. You mentioned Eddie Heckard, the transfer, who might be good stepping into that role from Weber State. Um, But yeah, I guess that's the biggest question mark for me on the defensive side of the ball. Yeah, and that's, for this new style defense, that's going to be important. I I do think Micah Harper and Eddie Heckard might be two of the best players on defense, which is good for them. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you, you mentioned uh, Robinson. Robinson is kind of a plucky, plays hard. It's pretty small. Kind of, he's a reasonably athletic, but I, I worry about him a little bit out there getting isolated. Yeah. Um, Malik Moore, I like, but he has some of the worst hands. He probably dropped like four or five interceptions last year. Um, and he's a little, he's a little thin playing strong safety. Um, but, but he has experience as well. My main concern is still, it's not even really concern is I don't even know what to expect to see with the defense because the defensive scheme is going to be so different that all of these players are going to be playing essentially different positions than they've played before that I don't know what to expect from them. What I'm worried about is watching them play against Oregon last year against athletes in space. They looked like they were, they had no chance if, if they got Oregon's wide receivers out in space and the quarterback had some time. And I don't believe the defensive line is a good pass rushing defensive line. Um, just flat out. I just don't think even even now that they'll be more allowed to actually rush the passer, I just don't think they have very much athleticism. Even Tyler Batty, I think people really liked Tyler Batty his freshman year because he came in as a freshman, as a backup, and got a bunch of sacks against like Western Kentucky and these little backup offensive linemen that weren't any good. And since then, I haven't really seen that much from him. Mobile quarterbacks scare me because they just can't, they're just not athletic enough to, to, to contain most of the mobile quarterbacks that they have come across, come across. And that's looking at Kansas and Kansas here, specifically at the game at Lawrence. It's, it's going to be rough to try to contain um, their, their offense and their system. 
but they do have good pass rushing linebackers, right? Like I would say Ben Bywater and Max Tooley have been pretty good, like, but just because they were never able to play in that kind of system yeah. before, um, that that's the, that's the big difference, right? Is yeah. we haven't seen them in playing in this type of system. But I would say that like they're pretty athletic. They were good at even considering the the type of coverage that they were playing. They were relatively good at like getting to the quarterback and things like that. So I'm excited to see if they're going to be more successful in this type of a system. And there's a few. Also, Chaz Alu is still on the team, has a lot of experience. And then there's a few names like Harrison Taggart I mentioned is the redshirt freshman from Oregon, and then Isaiah Moa is a redshirt freshman as well. Those guys are a little more athletic, I think. Uh, they just haven't had an, an opportunity to show show that. They also still might be a little undersized, uh, given their youth. So there's definitely potential, and I I just don't know because I haven't seen the defense. I don't know like. I think we're like, I haven't seen the scheme and how the players fit within the scheme. Mm -hmm. I have, I have lots of reservation. Uh, Yeah. I have lots of reservation, but it can't be much worse than they were last year. Let's be honest. So, and, and this also goes back to what we talked about before is if the offense is good, then you want your defense to be aggressive because that gets your offense more, even if you get scored on quickly, it means your offense gets the ball back again. You get more possessions. And this year, they've changed the rules to where the clock runs even after a first down until like the last two minutes of the game. So there will be mm. probably less, one to two less, probably one to two less possessions per team per game. The games will go faster than they have before. So it's even more important. Um, that so your offense yeah. gets gets opportunities to score and that time of possession, right? Um, so I don't know. It'll be it'll be interesting to see. I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, I'll, we'll know a lot more after. Well, we won't though because they play two bad teams. But we'll at least know Arkansas kind of what third week. Like. Arkansas for sure. We'll know. I'm I'm nervous for that game. Yeah. Like well, you should rough. be going into Razorback Stadium. And I mean, that's, that's going to be a rough crowd, you know? Yeah. Um, But overall, like it's probably going to be some growing pains this year, but in the long run, I think this switching over to this play style is really going to benefit, you know, BYU making this successful transition into the big 12 because playing the the style that they have the past few years, I don't think is going to cut it. And, you know, against a lot of those, uh, a lot of those other teams, especially, Uh, against teams that have uh, traditionally kind of had more of a run heavy attack. So I think another one last thing that will be interesting as a, from a BYU fan watching BYU now in the big 12 is the big 12 has been an incubator for innovation since its existence. Like all the spread concepts that have been popularized and they're now common in the NFL. That's from the big 12. Uh, That's from teams like, like Texas Tech and Oklahoma State being mediocre and not being able to recruit players like Texas and Oklahoma and having to do things to compete. And so it's always, because it's full of a lot of mediocre schools, a lot of the mediocre schools have had to innovate. And so I'm interested to see how BYU's coaching staff adjusts to facing coaches who are very good. There's a very good 
number of talented coaches in the Big 12 who who will find your weaknesses and exploit them. Um, so that'll be it'll be curious to see. It'll be a test for the coaching staff in a in the uptick to the Big 12, uh, at least as much as the talent of the players, in my opinion. Especially next year, like this year, there's still there's they play Texas and Oklahoma. They still have some schools that and they play Arkansas that are just more talented. But going forward, it's going to be a lot of X's and O's battles in the Big Twelve to find those advantages in the margins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now, yeah, that'll be important to pay attention to going forward. So now that we've kind of you know painted a picture of what uh, all the players and stuff, kind of how we think the the BYU system is going to work this next year, what are your overall expectations for the team this next year, as far as record is concerned? I mean, I think. My expectations is I, I, they need to go to a bowl game, especially since they're playing two kind of patsy teams with Sam Houston. Although, yeah, Sam Sam Houston is in their first year in Division One football. They're a very good Division Two program historically, but that's a game that they should win at home, right? And in Southern Utah, should certainly be a game they win at home. So you get two gimmies. You only have to win four more games the rest of the season. And so that's my minimum requirement is you got to make a bowl game in their first year. And that still might be tough, but there are winnable games on the, ske- on the schedule. At Kansas is winnable, although I don't think they will. I think they're going to lose that game. But at Kansas is winnable. Cincinnati is winnable. Uh, at West Virginia, they'll be favored in that game. Iowa State, with their Iowa State's lost their starting quarterback and starting running back and some other players because of some gambling scandals going on so iowa state's not as tough and you get them at home so that's west virginia iowa state cincinnati that's three games that they'll be favored in that they should win and you just got to steal one more you got to steal kansas steal oklahoma at home steal texas no that's (laughs) I'm gonna to go to that game actually. Yeah. I'll be at that oh really? Game. Oh, that'll be so fun. I mean, uh, it might it might not be close, but it, yeah, it'll oh, be fun to be there. I mean, BYU, or Texas fans certainly have PTSD with BYU. Yeah, they are. They are. The last time they played, um, back when Taysom Hill ran for like four hundred thousand yeah. yards. Well, which time? Because <laughs> he ran he ran for like two hundred and seventy yards in Provo when BYU won, and then they. BYU beat Texas like forty-one to seven or something at at in Austin. That was the last game they played. Yeah. So BYU, sh- I mean, they shouldn't be scared of Texas in the way that like they, but but I'll also say those Texas teams were not this Texas team, not anywhere yeah. close in terms of coaching or talent or or anything. I think mm-hmm. I think Texas is probably going to win by three or four touchdowns in that game, um, but. So that's actually, that's probably the only game that I'm 100% writing off. And Arkansas. There's no way they're beating Arkansas. There's no way they're beating Texas. As long as KJ Jefferson doesn't get hurt, then maybe they have a chance. But but all the rest of them, they have a reasonable chance. They could beat Oklahoma at home. They could beat Texas Tech at home. Um, On the road at TCU will be tough. But I think TCU will be a bit down this year, right? Like losing Max Duggan, losing their starting running back. Um, so I don't know. It'll We'll just have to see. 
And like also, I mean, TCU just played like a lot of super close games that they just kind of edged yeah, out this last year. So that might just be a totally different story this year. Um, but I mean, still having that game on the road makes that one tough. It'd be a different if it was in Provo, it'd be a different story. But but yeah, I would say like bowl eligible. I would hope that they could get it to seven and five. That would be my hope for them. Because like you yeah. said, they have the few gimmies at the beginning. Uh, I would expect them to beat Cincinnati at home. And then the other teams like West Virginia and Iowa State that should be able to beat. That might be a rough game in Morgantown against West Virginia just because historically BYU struggles, you know, traveling that far, playing on the East Coast. I West Virginia is going to be bad, though. West Virginia is not good this year. I think that's the really thing. Yeah. yeah, they're they might be the worst team in the Big 12. You think so? I Even, think they have yeah. one of the worst. They have better odds. Like so, looking at the projections for when winning the Big Twelve title, they have better odds than BYU currently. Mm-hmm. Uh, BYU is only ahead of Houston, and I think it just might be Houston, Cincinnati, or maybe yeah, yeah, it might be. Yeah. I think Cincinnati. They have Cincinnati ahead of them too, which I don't know. I mean, it's just the odds. So you know, yeah. what does that what does that really mean at this point? Yeah, but. Yeah. Anyways, but yeah, that would be my hope. They get to seven and five, make a bowl game. Good, you know, success for your first year in the Big Twelve. I think that would be that'd be good. So. There is certainly a route for them to be seven and five. Yeah. No, but but I I would agree that would be. I'd be pretty happy with seven and yeah. five. Would you be disappointed if they were six and six? I guess that's my question: is where, where at what point is disappointing? Disappointing five and seven. Okay, that's where, that's where, that's where I am too. That's where I am too. I'd still be satisfied if they get six and six and make a bowl game. So, but optimistic, I'm being like seven and five. That's where I'm setting my my hopes for. Would you rather be six and six or five and seven with a win at either Texas or or against Oklahoma? Ooh, oh man, that's tough. Because I mean, yeah, that would be awesome. Um, I mean, how much does a win against Oklahoma mean this year? I, I, I don't really know what to expect from Oklahoma this year. If we, if it was a win against Oklahoma that we saw last year, I don't really feel like that means much. And then also they're leaving to the SEC anyway, so who cares? Yeah. So, I don't know. If it's a win against Texas, that's a different story. <laughs> I think I'm going to go with, I'm more happy with six and six. Okay. What about you? Yeah. I mean, I feel like you're you're against them winning against Texas, right? Yeah, so, yeah, I am. So, so that's so that's almost a, a no brainer for you. So yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I'd I'd prefer them to be six. Well, I'd want them to win more than six games, but of the two choices, I would pick six and six. As well. Yeah, I'll pick six and six, and then just whenever Texas Longhorn fans talk to me, I'll just remind them about the Taysom Hill game back in the you know, back in the day. I mean, you still BYU. BYU will always, probably forever, because I don't know if Texas will ever play BYU again. Why would they? They've won more games against Texas. BYU's like four and one or something against Texas all time. Wow. So and so, even if they lose, they probably forever and ever will have a winning record against Texas. So and if they win against Oklahoma, I think they've only played Oklahoma once and they won. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, that sounds good. Go come out on top. Stop while you're ahead. 
So great. Well, I think that wraps up our discussion about um, the BYU football season preview. Um, so kind of to to conclude this episode, we wanted to talk about the overall landscape of college football, what it's looking like, kind of what we're thinking going into the season. And really the best, the only way that we can think of to do that is just to look at the the preseason rankings that have come out for the top 25 and talk about, you know, what we're thinking about the rankings. Like, is there any teams that were surprised to see in the top 25 and then also teams that were surprised to not see in the top 25? So, uh, yeah, what were your thoughts there, Brady? Um, I think that we're, we're looking at the top 25 coaches poll, which I think is the only one we have out. That's like an official poll. There's some like power rankings and things from ESPN that use the FBI, but as far as an official poll that people recognize the coaches poll is out. And I think it's not too bad. Actually. I think it's, there's not too many things on here that I'm just like, wow, that is a gross oversight or that is just completely wrong. Um, mm-hmm. They have Georgia at number one, Michigan at number two, Bama at number three. Ohio State at number four, LSU at number five, USC six, and we'll talk about some of the others. But um, there's not any gross miscalculations, in my opinion. I think Notre Dame at 13 probably will be a little higher with Hartman from Wake Forest. I think that the increase yeah. in talent at the quarterback position is going to help Notre Dame. Um, Washington at number 11. I would put Washington higher. I thought they were pretty impressive. So I would move USC down a little bit and move Washington higher. But Washington's at 11 and USC's at 6. So we're kind of almost splitting the hairs. Like when you get from really 6 to like 14 or 15, probably not 14, maybe 6 to 13, all of those schools are kind of interchangeable in my opinion. Yeah. So you could make some arguments there, but I'm not offended by anything um, in that ranking. I think LSU is going to be really good, but they probably need to prove it. And I think Alabama will be will lose a couple games. But once again, they're talented, and probably they should start the year at number three. right? But if they lose, then they lose. And I think they will. I think they'll lose to LSU. I think they'll lose to Texas. Um, maybe one or two, other, maybe one other game too. They're still talented and they're still good, but including Bryce Young and Will Anderson and uh, not having a solid quarterback at their position, I think is going to hurt Alabama yeah. this year and some tough games they have. There's a couple of interesting schools, Oklahoma at 19 and A&M at 25. They're five and seven last year. Um, but yeah, I guess before we get into anything else, what do you think? Do you have, do you, what are your initial reactions to this top 25 best Jordan I mean the initial schools that popped out to me from the top 10 that I was like wasn't sure about seeing there was LSU and FSU Mm -hmm. um so LSU's coming off a 10 and 4 season I think FSU is 10 and 3 and like both in like where they didn't have maybe the toughest schedule but they did play you know a few of like the best teams in college football so they lost those games but I don't know I don't know if I can question that too much because I know LSU, it sounds like they've really kind of loaded up with a lot of good talent, which they always seem to do. Like they have like, it seems like they go through these waves of like, they're kind of not super uh-huh. good for a couple of years. And then they're, they'll win really, the really national good. championship uh-huh. for that one year. Cause they're really, really good. Yeah. And then they'll go through a lull period again. So maybe this is that year again, that they're 
back on top of the SEC and kind of the college football landscape. But I don't know. I need to see a game first before I can jump on that train. And then, yeah, I don't know FSU like because the ACC isn't super strong and they did lose to Clemson and Wake Forest last year, I believe. And I think there are other losses to Notre Dame. I'm not totally sure, but I don't know. And I I think their quarterback situation is kind of up in the air, so I'm not really sure what to expect from them. I think they got a transfer from Louisville. Um, I, I think I don't know. I think you know Florida State. I think Florida State's bringing back. I can't remember his name, but I think they are bringing back their quarterback, and he's pretty good. I think Florida State does have a good quarterback. Really, this okay. year. Um, I think that's one of the reasons that people like them is they're bringing back some talent, uh, some good skill positions, and they do actually play LSU. That's one of the biggest games, non-conference games this year. Yeah, it's that's opening week, isn't it? I think so. Yeah, week one. Uh, so we'll get to see what's what with those schools a little bit. They'll play each other, and and uh, and we'll see. Yeah. But, but I know for LSU, Harold Perkins, oh, their defensive end, he's a sophomore this year. He's really good, and Jaden da- Jalen Daniels. Jaden, Jaden Daniels, Jaden, the guy from Arizona State who's now at LSU, he's pretty good too. He's an experienced quarterback. But you're right; those teams, those teams are question mark teams. That those teams mm-hmm. were pretty good last year and are expected to take a step, but we don't know if they really will or not. Yeah, yeah. I guess it just remains to be seen. Anybody else? Who? What else stands out to you there? I think that's mainly it. Yeah, like you said, it seems like a lot of these teams are interchangeable after the first four or so. Um, a team that I think was surprised to maybe not see on there was Arkansas, because of all it's kind mm-hmm. of a similar story, right? That you're you have all this talent that skill position that's returning, like KG Jefferson, um, and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean they didn't have the best record last year. I think they ended up at seven and six. So um I guess there's that, but was kind of also I was expecting them to see them in the top twenty five, but yeah, I know Arkansas has a tough, tough schedule. Uh, trying to, I'm pulling up their their schedule for this year. Um, they have a back to back to back to back of. They play. Uh, without so they play, they get BYU at home, but then they go to LSU. They play Texas A and M in a neutral site. Then they go to Old Miss, to Alabama. Uh, that's that's a pretty rough mm. stretch for Arkansas. Yeah. That so, that, is, but, that is a rough stretch, yeah. But they are um, they're good. They're a team that's on the kind of the bubble. If they win a few mm-hmm. games, they certainly could be in the top twenty-five. If that makes sense. There's a couple teams that would have gripes, I think, um, to be in the top twenty-five. Kentucky is one who yeah. they're pretty decent last year and they bring in uh, I think his name is Devin Leary from North Carolina State who he was a pretty good quarterback for North Carolina State in his time and he's going to come replace uh, Will Levis at Kansas or at uh, Kentucky I mean so they could have an argument that they're kind of should be in the 20s in the top 25 UTSA they won uh, their their conference two years in a row now. They bring back Frank Harris. Uh, Jeff Trailer is one of the best. Uh, younger, I guess not, he's not super young, I guess. New coaches in college football. He's done a great job with UTSA. They could make an argument as a group of five saying, hey, we should be you know, near Tulane there. 
and then Iowa as well. You have Wisconsin here at 21 um, with Luke Fickle coming in from Cincinnati. But Iowa has an argument. They bring in Cade McNamara from Michigan. They bring in the tight end from Michigan as well to plug into their abysmal offense that will hopefully help. But they are defense. You know their defense is going to be good. You know they have good home field advantage. They have strong special teams. They're going to be a a team that should be hovering around probably where Wisconsin is. So they are another, mm-hmm. those are three teams that I would say aren't in this top 25 list that could make an argument that they certainly should be over a team like Texas A&M who went five and seven last year. And although to be said, I think Texas A&M might be really good. They have a lot of talent and potentially a, an answer at quarterback. But yeah, that's kind of mostly what my thoughts were. And Oklahoma is another team that, they were six and six last year, and I don't have a lot of evidence that they're going to be much better than they were last year, mm-hmm. other yeah. than just hoping they progress, right? From an Oklahoma perspective, they didn't get they a lot lost. of like new transfers or anything that would make you think that not those skill positions. They have a lot of depth, they hit a lot of transfer additions at the uh, at the Demons flying position, but they lost several guys to the NFL. Um, I think the main hope for Oklahoma is Dylan Dylan Gabriel stays healthy. They win some of the close games they lost from last year, and um, their defense transitions better to the Brent Venables defensive system that was new last year. If all those things happen, they can win 10 games and be pretty good. But I don't know if that will happen because they were pretty bad last year. (laughs) A lot of their defensive issues, though, to be fair to them, I think were like total breakdowns so it wasn't like they were just getting overpowered by kansas state they were just they're just unorganized unorganized and people were running wide open because they they miscommunicated so if some of those things were cleared up it's logical they could make a significant increase on defense so i don't know i'm excited i'm excited who do you think jordan uh, if you, unless you have some other thoughts as well but uh, do you have any uh, predictions for your college football playoff? Who are your four teams that you think are gonna are gonna make it? That's just so hard to choose at this point because just I need to see some sort of eye test, you know, of like what what these teams are gonna look like. But um, I think a big indicator will be week two, Texas plays Alabama. Yeah, see where the, well, those two teams are. Because, yeah, like you said, there's some concerns with Alabama. i always going to have concerns with Texas. Not really sure. Because every year, I yep. feel like at the beginning of every year, we're like, this is the year. Texas is yep. back. Uh-huh. And then they're not really quite not. back. So yeah. we'll see. But maybe this is the year. So I think week two really tells. Uh, that'll, that'll be um, a big implication. The winner of that game will be in good position for the college football playoff. So I feel like I had to either pick the winner of that game uh other sec team either georgia or lsu michigan state and ohio state as the third person and then a wild card for the fourth spot do we have to actually pick teams yeah like, you do individual you have to pick teams? your four teams and then we'll judge you oh, later in the year gosh. if you're good at your job or not it's gonna be so bad here you go first okay. <laughs> after you all right georgia georgia's gonna be in there they're pretty good, and their schedule's not too bad. They're Who's playing bad. quarterback at Georgia now? I don't know. 
It doesn't guy. matter. They can just plug and play matter. anyone. Because, I mean, I guess if Stetson Bennett, like, with his count, like, he was solid, but he wasn't, like, a phenomenal quarterback. So you're saying if, if they can win with Stetson Bennett, they can win with whoever else they have to play. Yeah, pretty much. But I think the guy they're bringing in is talented. I think he was, like, a high yeah. four-star recruit. He's And he's, like, a junior. So he's been sitting and waiting his time. So I don't I don't know. I don't know his name off the top of my head. And I don't know if he's very good, but he's probably fine. You just, just throw it to Bowers. Throw it to Brock Bowers. Run uh, the ball. That's a good point. You know, it's not that complicated, right? And their defense is going to be really good. I think Jordan, and yeah. So Brock I can... Vandegrift, does that sound right? Maybe. Maybe. Georgia starting QB? Okay. That's what I'm coming up with. But Okay. Well, let's go with that. Okay. All right. But, <laughs> but yeah, so I, I would have Georgia in there. I'd also have Michigan in there. I think Michigan returns a lot of what they had last year. Um, quarterback gets another year of experience. He's, he's talented. He makes some mistakes, but he's talented. And uh, they probably are in a better position than Ohio State right now. And that's those mm-hmm. are the two best teams in the Big Ten. So I'd have Georgia-Michigan. I think those are accurate as a one and two, at least to start the season for expectations. And then the third team, you have to pick a second SEC team. And so since Georgia is going to win the East, um, probably I'd pick a team from the West. And so that'd be Bama or LSU. And I'm going to go with LSU here. So I think it's going to be Georgia-Michigan-LSU. And then the fourth team, I think the Pac-12 is going to eat each other up a little bit. I think the Pac-12 is pretty good this year, actually, with Washington, USC, and Oregon, and I think, and Utah. And I think those teams are going to beat each other to where it's going to be hard for one of those schools to get in. Um, I'm kind of thinking through this fourth team right now. Uh, I really should... So with Texas, here's the thing. Here's the thing is they are, everyone talks about how Texas, everyone thinks Texas is going to be back. And they're, they are generally ranked at the beginning of the year, regardless of how they did the previous year. But they haven't been picked to win the Big 12 by the media since 2009. This is the first year, but they were this year. This is the first year since 2009, Texas was picked by the media to win the Big 12. And if you listen to the Texas Insider sites, they have a different level of talent and depth, specifically talented depth, than they have had since probably 2008, actually. Uh, They have a top three wide receiver room in the country. It really is kind of dependent on two things. If Sarkeesian makes some adjustments so that they can be better in the second half of football games, because if you just watched the first half of Texas football games for the past two years, you would have thought Texas was a college football playoff team. Like, they they've blown people out. They're good teams in the first half of games, mini games, and look really good. And then they the other team makes adjustments and they don't. So Sarkeesian needs to make adjustments, and Quinn Ewers needs to be a first round pick. And if he is a first round pick, Texas is going to win the Big Twelve and they're going to go to the playoff. If he's not, then they still might win the Big Twelve, but they probably will lose a couple games and they won't go to the playoff. So. I won't pick them because why would I? Why why would I do that to myself? But I'm just stating that they are really good. They're going to win at least nine games this year, and probably will win ten and go to the go to, go to the Big Twelve championship game. Um, but I'm going to pick. Oh man, the fourth team is hard though. Yeah. 
I want to say I want to say Washington as a sneaky Pac-12 school. But like I said, I think that Pac-12 schools are going to beat each other up. So maybe maybe Clemson because Clemson has a weak schedule. Clemson yeah. or maybe Notre Dame. He just had so many. I, I would almost want to put Clemson there too, but Clemson has had so many problems these last few years, just trying to get things figured out. I don't think Clemson's the fourth best team. Yeah, but but they might just win those games. They might just win their games because their league's not very good, and they so they basically just have to beat Florida State. If Florida State beats LSU, it's going to be Florida State's going to be that team because that means they're pretty good. But yeah, <sighs> okay. Uh, fourth team. I'm going to say, I'm going to say Washington. That's my fourth team. Fourth team's hard. Yeah, that is hard. Um, I mean, mine's going to be pretty similar. I think I'm going to go Georgia, Michigan, LSU, because I didn't realize that LSU, their schedule actually doesn't look too bad. Like, they're not playing Georgia. Yeah, all they're playing Alabama. Alabama might not be as good this year. And then um, I think I would go with USC over Washington. Um, because yeah, USC was they were close this last year. Like they, but they just lost to Utah, right? Is that the, that was the main barrier that was keeping them out of the the college football playoff? Yeah, they ended they ended the season getting blown out by Utah twice and yeah. losing to Tulane. Well, they did in lose the, the green in the in cotton the, hole. Really? Oh, yeah, I forgot yeah. about that. But they were winning that game until the end. Tulane mm-hmm. came back. So, yeah, I USC, would USC. USC makes sense. USC or yeah. Washington are teams that make sense there. Okay. All right. Cool stuff. Well, thank you all for. For joining us on this episode of the Provo Pick and Roll podcast. So great to be back and to be discussing college football. And um, yeah, we'll look forward to see how this season unveils as it goes. But as always, we appreciate you guys for joining us. And uh, until next time, whoosh, Kevin. And go Cougs. <laughs>